Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. Explore the lesser-known stories of our unknown world. Join the pursuit of the paranormal with Ash and Greg. Hey Ash, how's it going? I'm good, Greg. I am really enjoying our UFO month. Yes. On Pursuit of the Paranormal. Yes, so this will be our third episode of the UFO month in December. And yeah, we've had yeah. some good chats already this month, which has been great. Yeah, we've had Ryan Sprague, we've had yeah. a UFO researcher from Hong Kong talking about Chinese UFOs, which is yeah. fascinating if that's something we've not really talked about that much. No, that's right. And one of the sightings was for over 4,000 years ago, specific to the month as well. Based <laughs> February on, 4,000 years ago. Yeah, based on Chinese scriptures. So that was insane, really. And it's not something we've we've spoken about in the in the last couple of years, so amazing to uh to talk to to somebody about it finally and get some quite specific information yeah that was awesome last week but this week we are welcoming ufo royalty is that a, a way to put it someone who's yeah, been around definitely. um a long time worked with some amazing people done some amazing work someone i've been a fan of for quite some time i was fortunate to meet back in may in hull when he came over to to speak at the outer limits conference back in may so welcome peter robbins thank you so much for joining us thank you guys good to be here yeah thanks for coming on and uh, joining us all the way from uh, new york state indeed glad to be here and um uh the travel was no problem at all so peter is a investigative writer author and lecturer Whose writing and research are focused on the subject of truly anomalous UFOs and their implications for humanity. He's featured on many, many TV shows, has his own podcast, couple of podcasts actually, interviewing guests and talking about all things UFO. So, I guess just to start off, for people that might not have heard about you, if we take it back to the start, just a little, a quick origin story. How did you get to where you are now? This might be a big question. <laughs> uh, I can tell you how it started. Um, yes, yeah, maybe, yeah, start there. I was a kid growing up in a, a very different time in America, a much more innocent time. Um, all things good, um, great in most respects. Uh, wonderful parents, two wonderful sisters, um, born in New York City and lived there most of my life, but came of age in a village about 30 miles east of Manhattan. Uh, and um, one, I guess, late morning, mid-morning, my sister Helen and I were playing around in front of the house. It was either late spring or early summer. We think it was June. Um, and uh, we were really just kids, uh, 14 and Helen 12, but a lot less sophisticated than most kids today, certainly that age. Uh, UFOs, flying saucers, um, the only interest that I had in the subject was very specific, and it had to do with the fact that uh, usually on Saturdays in the afternoons and mornings, uh, our local movie theater would show great old black and white B-movies. Well, they weren't old then. <laughs> uh, 
And if you were lucky, it was, um, you know, I, I liked seeing space creatures destroy the earth and giant radioactive insects. And But at the same time, I think I intuited from the adult world that this, you know, uh, the idea of flying saucers from other planets and things was not serious. Um, so I was completely unprepared uh, on that particular moment um, when I caught something in the sky out of my right peripheral vision uh, coming in at a high rate of speed and just stopping over the neighbor's house. Uh, my sister was about six feet to my left, and we were one of those times in a small town or village where there's just nobody around. No other kids playing, you know, um, uh, no ice cream man truck, uh, no mailman, no cars going by, not unusual. And there they were, five silvery white disc-shaped objects, uh, like holding out uh, a dinner plate at arm's length, but tipping it so it's an ellipse. Um, and they were in a very precise V, as in Victor, formation. And there's no doubt that many years later, because I, I suppressed this memory, I repressed it uh, for years. Uh, when we first talked about it, uh, she immediately agreed with me that they were metallic, not shiny, you know, like stainless steel, but metallic. And that they were close enough that we could each clearly see regular detailing around like the middle edge of each one that was slightly lighter that the only thing we could compare it to again years later was um, the windows on an air, you know, commercial airliner um, at an appreciable distance. And the, I have to stress here, this was an absolutely cloudless sky. Um, and there they were. And I went through a reaction that I've documented in many witnesses' uh, accounts because there's nowhere else to go. You're minding your business, living your life, and you look up and you see something or things, and your rational mind just starts to reel off everything you know they're not. Planes, helicopters, kites, blimps, dirigibles, strange-shaped clouds, reflections from the ground, you know, a giant plastic bag. And I really kind of hit the wall inside myself. Um, I really was desperate in a way at the end to try to come up with something. And I, I did, uh, which I've relived several times in regressive hypnosis years ago, um, namely thinking they might be some kind of secret government test plane, my 14-year-old mind's words. Um, and then I realized, you know, to be a plane, you've got to have wings and a tail and propeller or jet engines or something. And um, I, I really felt kind of the bottom fall out. Um, everything I thought I knew was true was now open to question. And that's how, well, again, the impact on me was so extraordinary that um, I couldn't deal with it. And within a matter of weeks, as people can do, um, usually in much more, sadly, uh, uh, traditional trauma, um, you can repress a memory fully. Anyway, um, my sister had a very different experience, which was um, that sighting was the beginning of an abduction experience for her. And when we first spoke about this more than 14 years later, uh, my career derailed. 
I just, I became so obsessed with the subject and what had happened to my sister at a time when I had no idea there were UFO conferences, UFO organizations. I didn't know anybody that was interested in the subject. It was years before the internet. Um, and it took me a while to get my bearings, but that's how I began. Wow. So how did you sort of, you said it was like 14 years later when you spoke about it again. How did that sort of come about? Mm. Like one of you remember it or? Um, I think the most important reason that these things come up when they do for people is that you're more or less ready <laughs> to deal with it. And, you know, it comes up. Um, there were three things that I think contributed to it for me. One was um, uh, I lived in a, I, I was a, a aspiring painter in New York City at the time, and I lived in a loft in uh, East Chinatown, downtown. And um, it was within a matter of a, a few short days after Chinese New Year. And back in the day, uh, it was wall-to-wall fireworks for days. And it was exciting and fun, but, you know, for several days, the smell of Chinese food would be overwhelmed by cordite. And you didn't sleep necessarily at night. I think my cat had a nervous breakdown. Um, I was tired. The other thing was um, I had recently done a human potential workshop, which I had never done before. And that kind of opened me up. That was a week or two before. And um, finally, um, a girlfriend of mine had done a wonderful thing for me. My grandmother had given me a bunch of drawings that I did as a kid that I left at her apartment in New York. Uh, this was before the time that parents routinely displayed their young geniuses' artwork on refrigerators around the world. My theory on that is that refrigerator magnets were not yet invented. Um, but... It was a revelation to me as an artist uh, in my later or mid-20s that I had dozens of drawings that I had done starting at six years old, you know, watercolors as well, uh, up until I was about 14, overlapping that period of time, having no, no artwork, having anything to do with it, of course. But I, what she had done, my, my uh, girlfriend, um, was... Back in the day when you did advertising work, you used acetate and you worked with non-crawl inks on it. It's all pre-digital. It's ancient now. But she had this big roll of acetate. She said, I can put each drawing with acetate on both sides of it and use electrical tape to seal it off. Some of them were like manila paper, really breakable. I know I'm off on a tangent here, but I'm going through these drawings and really enjoying it. It's kind of a time trip. And all of a sudden this memory came roaring into my mind. I don't know how else to describe it. Like a, a wave or a freight train on a tape loop. And bang, I was back. Of course I knew it had happened. It was the most extraordinary thing that ever happened to me in my life. And I immediately thought that there was something wrong with me because uh, how could anybody forget that? And I, I got quite upset about it. I calmed down, had a cup of tea, thought it out, and said, I have a witness. And my sister, who was an aspiring poet at the time, a year before she broke big in the music business, uh, lived a mile or so north of me in the East Village. Um, 
And I called her, asked her if it was a good time, then told her I didn't want to tell her what the memory was that had returned to me because I thought if I just said it, she'd say yes or no. But I'd never really know, you know. So I set the scene. Weather, time of day, where we were standing, cut me off. And uh, after that, she started to describe this always conscious series of memories of being taken. I had never heard of anything like this before. Maybe I had a subconscious memory from a, a popular magazine from an article on Betty and Barney Hill that was suggested to me. Nothing beyond that. And um, people say my life changed overnight. Mine changed in about 90 seconds. And I continued to uh, be a professional painter, teach painting, um, work in galleries. But in, the real flame had gone out of it. Something more important had taken its place. And I resented it to a degree I still do. But um, I guess part of why I wanted to live a life as a, a successful professional artist in New York was to live an interesting life like we all do. And boy, I sure got stuck with that, didn't I? <laughs> well, so what was your sister's sort of thoughts when this was happening, when this sort of memory was, was coming back? Well, um, we spoke, and uh, after I, she described to me what I remembered, with one detail, she wasn't sure whether it was five or six. And in fact, after we got off the phone, I did my first UFO-related painting, which was what we had seen, as simple as rendering as I could, um, but with an extra one. And when she came over the next day, I showed it to her. I showed it to her with my hand above it and then removed my hand and she immediately, it wasn't a check mark, you know, it was a V. So, um, but of course I asked her immediately uh, about these memories and I did have a moment, maybe several seconds where when she started to describe this to me and being, you know, taken off the ground, et cetera, um, I thought she might be losing it and then caught myself and had to laugh because five seconds before it was okay to have five flying saucers over the Parker's house where you could see their windows. Give me a break. Um, but it, I now know my sister's experience was an incredibly archetypical one. I've um, spoken with people and worked with people and researched uh, events that are literally identical even to um, what the experiencer is hearing telepathically. And it another thing that often accompanies these experiences is your emotions are not what they should be in the real world. Essentially, it's like, oh, this is interesting. That's was how she experienced most of it until at one point um, when they she was on the table um, and the words were, we love you, we won't hurt you. Um, she was experiencing pain from what they were doing. So uh, she was not a fan. So we've spoken to a few people that have had um, a UFO experience and they um, relay a similar type feeling that, or reaction to the situation for what essentially is such a profound thing that you would have never experienced anything like that before the first time. And 
a lot of people have a like a one time only so they never experience anything like that again or and, they yeah. only remember one time one of the exactly other. exactly um but they they have this profound experience and we've spoken to one lady and she she literally just went back into the house with her family after having a very close encounter as though nothing could even happened just sort of like that's right very bizarre like it, almost it like bizarre greg but yeah. um yeah exactly that's a pattern that's the way you yeah. know there's i know for folks who may be tuning in or listening to this as a podcast oh god you know alien abduction give me a break um all i can say is i've spent a good part of more than 40 years of my life um studying this and um it's as real as the chairs we're sitting on of course if it's never happened to you well gosh you know it must be something else uh, yeah. for me not the skeptics but the debunkers mantra is it can't be therefore it isn't therefore it's something else yeah therefore i got to make up something to explain to you because it makes me really anxious that it might be what we know it might be uh, and I, I used to um, sometimes just get frustrated with people who, not having studied it or read a book or spoken to anybody or seen physical evidences, et cetera, has that opinion. Um, that's changed a lot for me. I, I understand. Uh, and it's okay with me. Uh, if I were you and our situations were reversed, for somebody who has not had the experience, um, I appreciate it maybe more than most people do as a very real thing. So we're, but, we're yeah, it, it is bizarre, but they yeah. can, this particular group of other intelligences who are involved in this, uh, as they used to say on start of, I think it was the Outer Limits uh, old television show, we'll control the vertical, we'll control the horizontal, et cetera. You know, they can, they can, um, they can make you think things that didn't happen. So we're very fortunate that our listeners have been on a bit of a journey with me and Ash right from our first episode up to now, where we've covered off a lot of abduction cases, a lot of close encounter cases. But what one of the questions I've got for you is, at that point when you've, you've started discussing it with your sister, you work out that she's had like this abduction experience, how do you both start to even process that in a rational way that, that says we we believe something's happened to us or believe we've had its joint experience but your sister's had a further experience how do you even process that as a, a unit you know greg um people have asked me similar questions but nobody has ever asked it um, in that way and i appreciate it um, it's a really important question because as a case setting my sister here and I dispassionately of, you know, two young people who had an experience, um, one, an extremely, um, one, an extremely modest experience compared to the other one's experience, but life-changing, um, at a time when ufology, um, the UFO world, interest in the subject, the way it was covered, where you looked for information was completely different. And my first thought was, okay, it's real. It happened to us. This is mind blowing. But 
I have to pretty much think, very influenced by my culture and the way I grew up, that anybody else that said that they ever had anything like this has happened is absolutely nuts, and I don't want to be around them. So I did not immediately find out where a UFO meeting was. Um, I actually started to buy used books, uh, which I've always done, um, but books on the subject. And slowly, my library is mostly dominated by art and literature, the UFO books started to build up and I read them. Um, I could discern which ones were, you know, had some root in reality of some sort and others which were seemed like confabulations or fantasy prone or, you know, very welcome the Space Brothers kind of stuff. And there were magazines, most of them kind of pulp magazines that um, were hardly scholarly. Uh, read some of those, um, then found out about some newsletters, subscribed to them, and learned that there are a couple of people in my area, in the greater New York area, who maybe I, I could meet. And that's how I met my first two mentors. One was a tough, no-nonsense, um, highly decorated New York City police detective who also happened to be a crack UFO investigator. And uh, at the height of his work, had put together an organization is back in the 1970s into the 80s called the SBI or the Scientific Bureau of Investigation. And it was primarily police officers who, after 1969, when the Air Force went out of the business officially, but of course didn't, um, most folks who would have a, a legitimate sighting and wanted to report it and no longer had the Air Force officially, maybe they could report it to their local Air Force base, and often they'd phone the local, you know, constabulary police station. Uh, in smaller towns, cops knew some of these people and took them seriously, and cops had sightings. Anyway, um, Pete was the first person to um, um, really instill in me um, how to investigate. And for me, it's, it's not an ethereal activity. I think, again, there are so many aspects of UFO-related intelligence or beings or dimensions or what have you, I've always kind of focused on this one, come and gone, certainly, um, as, as one of my primary uh, interests. But the building a case, um, I, he taught me to think in a way like a law enforcement person or an attorney going to trial. You want to ideally have a triangulation of evidence not just obviously first quality, hard to impeach witness testimony, but maybe historic evidence, physical evidence, um, uh, photographic evidence, uh, documents, and build a case when possible. Obviously, in UFO studies, this can be elusive in, in many respects. Um, I also was lucky enough to be mentored by a great gentleman named Coleman von Kavetsky who during World War II was a staff officer on the Hungarian uh, Royal Army in charge of photo analysis and photo reconnaissance. He, he was an optics expert, and he emigrated to the States in 53, a month or two before the famous Washington, D.C., over the Capitol building sightings. And he looked at, at it as a military scientist and as a photo analyst, and that brought him into the work as a professional. 
um, my, I guess, um, the biggest break for me was less than a year into this and now starting to at least write back and forth to people around the country, letters, you know, that's what we did, um, and start to clip articles and things behind me. You see a bunch of binders. Some of them go back 40 years, cut and paste, just building my own little archive and trying to teach myself. It's so different now. Um, and in about a year into my interest, I was going by a New York newsstand and I saw a small headline on the cover of a weekly uh, New York City paper that said, quote unquote, sane man sees UFO. Well, couldn't leave that alone. Brought it home, <laughs> read it, and was very impressed. It was the best written up and documented case I had been exposed to in a newspaper that never covers this subject. And the author was a man named Bud Hopkins. And the New York City art world is, if you're in the middle of it, if you're at a periphery, if you're living in it, uh, it's a pretty small, incestuous world. And I knew there was a painter named Bud Hopkins. I think I'd seen a painting of his in a group show a few years before. But I went to the New York City phone book, that thick. There's only one Bud Hopkins in the book, two Ds, uh, no other Bud Hopkins. And I just cold called him and introduced myself as a fellow wow. painter who was teaching uh, painting at, uh, near him at the School of Visual Arts that I was getting very involved in this subject. And I read his article and how much I liked it. And I had had a sighting as a kid. My sister was with me and she seems to have been taken. And his very first question to me was, tell me about your artwork. That didn't go well. Um, I was coming out of a, a minimalist conceptualist uh, school and environment. He's a late period abstract expressionist whose work had certainly evolved from there. But he was interested in hearing about what happened to my sister. And a few days later, um, I, his invitation, I went over to his uh, building um, in the area we call Chelsea, uh, just above Greenwich Village, lower Manhattan. And we sat at his kitchen table and um, drank coffee and talked about UFOs and art and life and my sister. And you probably know that feeling, I'm sure a lot of your viewers do too, um, of something is happening and you have no idea that it's gonna be a huge turning point in your life. Um, other times it's obvious, you know, um, but that's what that was. And I, I have no idea how many hundreds of cups of coffee and more than a few shots of scotch I had at that table over the last 35 years. Well, over the 35 years that followed, Bud's been gone now since 2010. Um, but I work with him on and off as his assistant, first studio assistant as an artist, because I had done that for a number of artists uh, coming up. Anyway, um, when Five years later, after we met, when he published his first book, Missing Time, which remains a very important book uh, in the world of UFO studies, followed up by Intruders, um, his truly internationally best-selling um, case history of uh, a dear, somebody who has become a dear friend of mine, uh, Deb, Deb White Cabell, who goes uh, by the pseudonym of Kathy Davis in the book. Um, he was quite overwhelmed uh, with 
mail and phone calls and the like. And um, I just started to work as his assistant. And uh, it was certainly as gratifying a job as I ever had in my life and fascinating. And I knew it was important work. And um, I'm very fortunate to have that in my uh, professional education. Definitely. So like, obviously, from that moment when you, you had the memory of the experience, your life completely went off in, in that path to where you are now. Your well, sister... I, I held on to my identity as an artist for some years as long as I could. Yeah. Also, um, within a few years, I had started to work um, in a business that I love doing a job that I love more than any other job I ever had for on and off for half a dozen years, which was being a house manager for what I felt was New York City's um, uh, most remarkable repertory company. And I got to work with some brilliant actors over the years and still stay in touch with them, some of them. But yeah, this, this has really had me uh, to a great degree since that conversation with my sister. What what about your sister? Is, is she does she sort of follow a similar path, sort of after that experience, or is she well, sort of? What happened with Helen was very interesting. Um, she's incredibly creative. She was a great writer, um, a fine photographer, a good sculptor and painter, but at that time um, she was really um, devoted to developing as a poet, and. Um, within probably a number of months of this memory uh, springing out, um, her boyfriend at the time, and actually her boyfriend three times over the next 28 years, <laughs> and a very dear friend of mine, Albert Bouchard, founding drummer of the Blue Oyster Cult, um, the band had just really been created a few years before, but was still coming up through the ranks, uh, asked her if he could put some of her poems to music and he did. The other guys liked them. They went on the record. Um, and it was a very important album for them as the one that had, among other things, Don't Fear the Reaper. Um, and the record went gold. The record went platinum. And all of a sudden, my sister was a songwriter. And her dream, though, was to be a performer. And she jumped in with both feet and was part of that very first wave emanating primarily out of uh, the Club on the Bowery, CBGB's, um, of punk, um, this less than a year after Malcolm McLaren kind of kicked it off uh, in the UK. And uh, she went on to uh, a great per career as a performer and songwriter. Awesome. Awesome. So you mentioned the UK there because you've written a number of books and it's quite apt because when this goes out, it'll be a week from the 42nd anniversary of the, the Revolution Forest incident. Obviously, so I sort of want to know, obviously you're in New York, so what was it about the Rendlesham case some thousands of miles away that got you so interested in wanting to research that one? Great question, Ash. Um, at that point, I was 11 or 12 years into the work. I had had articles published. I had spoken at a couple of conferences. Um, the fact that I could say I was Bud Hopkins' assistant, you know, gave me a certain cachet. But I was looking for um, a serious writing project, a book. And I thought it might be about abductions, because it was just logical that it might be. 
And I went to um, what turned out to be a very significant MUFON conference uh, symposium. Their international that symposium that year in 1987 was um, in Washington, D.C. at American University. And it was right at that time that MJ-12 went public. Um, Stanton Friedman gave the finest paper I had ever heard, and it was really life-changing for me. It was called The Secret Life of Donald K. Menzel. Um, Menzel, um, the kind of godfather of all debunkers, uh, um, and the person who kind of created, to a degree, Philip Klass, uh, had all the right credentials. He was the head of astronomy studies at Harvard um, and uh, a distinguished you know, writer on astronomy, obviously. But he was living a secret life um, as well, a professional debunker. He wrote a number of books explaining away the kind of UFO possibilities we're talking about and was the expert that they would trot out you know, New York Times or whatever, uh, and, you know, show his latest diagrams on refractions off of clouds and all that good stuff. And um, how did I, oh, right. Um, anyway, um, Stanton, um, who we lost a couple of years ago, um, he was the first person to get into the Harvard papers, um, all of his papers in the National Archive, and with the permission of his widow, all of his personal papers. And he established him basically as a double. That was just quite something. There was also an American senator at the conference. Um, I met Jenny Randalls there. And there was also the speaker who I had met briefly um, several years before in 83, um, no, 84, maybe six months after the story broke in the UK in October in the News of the World in 1983. And it was this Art Wallace guy, a pseudonym for Larry Warren. And he gave a talk and I was interested enough uh, to want to do an interview with him. And we met briefly in the hall the next day. Uh, I told him, he said, great, when do you want to do it? We came to my apartment the next weekend and it's, I did a, a very in-depth interview for me. Uh, then he basically made the proposition about writing a book together, laid out his terms. Of course, I had no idea that he was not what he represented himself to be, and that's being kind. Um, but I bought it. And all the um, initial investigative work that I did, it either panned out or once I understood after we had made our first trip to the UK, uh, five months later, and I we had this multiple UFO event sighting within sight of RAF Bentwaters on the first night of our first visit. Wow. Um, that was probably the best thing that ever happened for him regarding me, because I realized I have to either believe him or not, and was able to rationalize away for years and years inconsistencies um, based on his PTSD, which I don't believe he had. I think he had an alcohol problem and was trying to perpetrate a fraud in part. So that's the long answer to your short question. That's I mean, how I got involved in that story. <laughs> I mean, I guess apart from sort of Larry's take on what happened or his story of what happened, the rest of the case is, do you think that is genuine? 
Oh, yes. It's... Oh, yes. And um, I probably, more than any American, um, know that. I lived, ate, and breathed it for almost a decade, and then for probably 15 years following, with two follow-up books, all three of which are appropriately out of print now, uh, supporting some of the same things that I now know were not accurate. Um, but I've probably been to the UK 20, 25 times, and I have been in that forest every time a year, every time a day, and a number of times at night. And, you know, people should be where it's not some ancient forest uh, planted by Henry II or whomever. Um, it's a logging forest that's probably not that much more than, you know, 150 years old. But that is one wild piece of real estate for sure. Um, I have had things happen to me and seen things. And certainly people whose accounts I take seriously have had more interesting things and more uh, life-changing things happen in that terrain. Yeah, I've had, I've been down there and I've had some weird... <laughs> Weird experiences. Yes, you have. Um. <laughs> I, I, I also want to say, um, even though I have uh, completely separated myself from that case, um, I felt it was appropriate um, five, six, five years ago now. Uh, I have not read really anything um, or kept up with it since, but I wish uh, all the current researchers uh, well, and of course, the name witnesses who we all know who have stood the ground, you know, for all these years. I mean, I guess when you put so much into something, and then, like, say, you sort of you knew something was off, but you just used justifications to keep at it, and then when obviously it all comes out, then that it is all hogwash. How how does that make you feel when you've gone through all that? I've been through worse. Um, my attitude is I would rather characterologically be the person that I am and occasionally get fooled than be completely cynical. I am a bit more circumspect now than I was in 1987 and 1988, uh, understandably. And again, it's a fascinating case. Um, I love the history uh, surrounding it. And I really fell in love with Suffolk. I mean, I've been lucky enough to travel in the UK and so many places I'd like to return to. But um, completely separate from the case, I will always return to Suffolk as often as I go back to the UK as possible. I guess in the, in the whole industry, like you said earlier, there's getting that hard evidence. There's you don't get like, not very often we get a case where there's lots of evidence to go with it, and it is a lot of you are relying on that the person you're talking to is being straightforward with you. It's you got to take a lot of stuff at face value, I guess, in this whole UFO paranormal. I think the great majority of the witnesses, the experiencers, um, the researchers who have uncovered information I wasn't aware of are honest. Um, It's the exceptions to the rule. As they say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Those are the ones that you hear about. And of course, even though um, public uh, take on the subject of UFOs has changed markedly over the last few years. Thankfully, ridicule is going away um, to a degree, Um, but it's still going to be slow going. And I think, for example, the American 
initiatives that are slowly grinding their way through Congress, but something's happening. All good. But those above congressional level who are, you know, keepers of the secret, so to say, it's it's a kabuki play. It's a stage managed production of releasing information at the slowest rate possible, I think, and at a rate which um, they feel the public can tolerate. Um, as far as their concerned disclosure should be stretched out another hundred years or so, I think. Give everybody a chance to get used to the idea. Um, we'll see what happens. What would disclosure mean to you? As in, what would you, what do you think disclosure is? So we've we've got at the moment. You've got the, like the Tic Tac, which are, <laughs> and the the two thousand and seventeen sure. New York Times post. Some people saying like that's that's almost the start of the modern day disclosure, potentially. It's a start. Yeah, I'll tell you what it really means to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. Um, and I had never thought of this really before in such a focused way. Um, February of twenty twenty pandemic hits us all in earnest. Our lives change. Yeah. Um, I really played it close. I. Here, the national emergency wasn't declared until I think uh, February, March sixteenth, and um, I, I had spoken at a conference in Knoxville, Tennessee, that weekend. Um, have a sister who's a nurse called her after I gave a talk, just to check in. And she reminded me. I, I reminded her that I told her I'd be going, and she said, "Yes, you did." But had you reminded me, I would have asked you to cancel the trip. She had been part of an initiative, uh, you know, eight hours a day, basically, online researching, networking with mental health, with health professionals around the country and the world, and laid out the possibilities for me. Backstory is that I finished all my shopping. Uh, I get home, I think on the 18th, I had shopped, you know, to be in my home for months if I had to. <laughs> I closed the door. I put a post-it note on the door that just said self-isolating that day. And I sat down, had a cup of coffee or drink or something. And this thought came to me, which was right now, on this day, at this time, all over the world, whatever else is going on with anybody else, the great majority of people at this moment are caught up in some of the same thinking. I am on the same subject. Let's experience that. And it was actually a revelation to me because that, when that, that for me is emblematic, disclosure has come to mean everybody in the world knowing this is real and having that reinforced by appropriate people, uh, you know, in public life, government, science, theology, whatever. Um, that's disclosure. Disclosure is happening. It's not happening the way that some people would like it to. Um, you know, in a great burst of uh, announcements from world leaders, you know, going on TV at the same time and basically saying the same thing to their people. Um, but it's happening. Every day, more and more people take it more seriously, have experiences, have sightings. Um, 
care less and less what other people think about it. That's important as well. And are willing to just say, I do take this seriously and I want to know more about this. What we will not be seeing is next year's special report from Congress about back engineering or crashed UFOs or um, hybrids or missing pregnancies or anything that's remotely exotic. Um, and I find that a particularly interesting challenge for all of us in the field. You can't dig half a hole. How do you begin to tell people something that will be shocking enough to them, knowing that any of them, the moment that you they turn around, can go online and say, wait a minute, see, is it true that people are getting abducted? Is it true that this um, that's hard to manage. And the excuse, one of the excuses from officialdom has always been, we can't risk it. Uh, the financial markets could crash, uh, petrochemical industry, um, and people of faith you know, will freak out. I think they'll be just the opposite, actually. I think they'll be fine overall. Extremists on all, in all manner, not so much. Um, but the best we can do right now is the best we can do and having people on your show each week um, and building a body of information that will help people educate themselves, pointing them towards sources, letting them, I recommend books pretty regularly, um, films, documentaries, um, whatever you feel, uh, click on this link for a really well-written, well-researched article on such and such. It's not, you know, as sexy as um, saying that, you know, you have these deep contacts with the, the NSA or, and again, this is completely separate from the world of people who are approaching this, most interested in and understandably supportive of the uh, very positive experiences that people report. Uh, the positively paradigm shifting experiences, how much of this may really be around consciousness per se. You know, it, it's, it's almost like hard metal machines of advanced technology under intelligent control by beings from parts unknown um, coming and going with impunity is the most conservative, obvious possibility for some of this and I find it um, actually amusing sometimes that people reject it, um, mostly because they don't know better. And um, you know, great Stanton Friedmanism, um, don't bother me with the facts, my mind's made up. Why should I embarrass myself by being seen reading a UFO book or something, please? <laughs> Very much so. There's, um, it's interesting that you mentioned about disclosure and sort of, all the different things that come with you, the ufology subject in terms of if they say, yes, UFOs are real, which they, they kind of said, at what point did they say that abductions are taking place, that cattle mutilations are taking place, that all these things that, and a word that you used, we used the other, the other night was impunity. These objects appear at will, do what they want at will. We have no means to stop them, control them, understand them, even know what they are. 
they can't give that information out to the general public because that Greg, would freak think, everybody out. <laughs> you know, you've touched on another very important aspect of this. Going back to the dawn of uh, all of this in the summer of 1947, not that there weren't other incidents documented in the same area, but, you know, officially it's kind of become unofficially, it's kind of become the beginning of the modern age of, of UFOs, of, of flying saucers, what have you, um, UAPs now. Um, but the men around Truman, um, and he pulled the, you know, the wagon close in with top advisors in really almost every field relevant to trying to figure out what to do in terms of their thinking was the American people, but of course, by extension, almost immediately, it meant the Western world. Mm -hmm. And I think after, for studying this subject for years, uh, my best take on it is after a preliminary examination and realizing they not only had no idea of what they were up against, mm -hmm. but that there was this probability that this was technology from off planet, um, intentions unknown at the very moment that the Cold War was officially kicking off. Uh, I think that's historic coincidence, but it's fact, uh, July, 1947, really. And I recently, in fact, um, Ash, when we met, um, the paper that I gave there, which um, a clearer version is published in the current issue of Outer Limits Magazine, was on the origin of UFO ridicule. How did it start? Makes no sense. and. Um, some of it is theoretical, some of it is documented, but I think I present a pretty good idea of what may have happened. And it was bought. The, I guess where I see my best role in this work is I will always be available to people who have had abduction experiences, if only to be an ear. Um, or to refer them to somebody who may be able to uh, help them, you know, accomplish what they want to in terms of better understanding, what have you. But I, I love history, um, a number of kinds of history, including ancient history of some countries and parts of the world and modern history. Uh, the history of the city of my hometown, New York City, uh, continues to fascinate me. But post-war history is UFO history. And so I think I'm most effective when I give presentations um, to couch my stories in real history that can be documented, relevant stories, of course, um, but to get regular folks who may or may not have an interest in it based on how they're introduced to the subject. Uh, at the end of, I'd like to think at the end of a presentation, and you can go online and check them out. There's plenty of them on Facebook um, that people would come away thinking, well, he doesn't seem insane. Pretty good with the English language. Uh, I'm aware of some of these historic events. If these documents are authentic, if this photograph is what it purports to be, I'm, I'm now a little more curious and get them into the entranceway and then let my colleagues take it from there in the living room and dining room. <laughs> so, so one area that I wanted to to talk to you about is something that we haven't really touched on 
massively on the podcast before, and that is the subject of crop circles. Now, I know you've got an interest in crop circles, and I just want, I've seen a number of crop circles in the UK. I live just down the road from Whitehorse Hill, just by Wiltshire, and had a number of experiences, weird experiences in crop circles. Um, what is your take on crop circles? I know some are man-made. I think people, some of them definitely are. Um, but what what do you think they are? What is creating them and what is the mess or the reason and message behind those? Well, um, this is obviously not a specialty of mine, but how can, you know, we have looked at these things from when they started appearing in modern times and not be fascinated by them. Um, I think there are a number of things like the UFO phenomena. Um, among the things that I think they are, um, are a phenomena that we don't understand that uh, because of physiological changes that are mind-blowing, um, including, you know, the standard uh, kind of knee joint that appears in the stalk and then it starts to grow at a 45 degree angle. Part of the mythology is that it's just squashed down. Um, there have been crop circles that carefully studied and um, Lawrence Rockefeller, one of the Rockefeller brothers, fascinated by the subject, um, gave Colin Andrews originally uh, grant money to look into this in a way that I still appreciate because you know there was a budget to run all kinds of scientific tests and handle it properly. But I think there's, number one, a phenomena that is mysterious. And we'll get back to that in a minute. Number two, I think human, you know, like um, uh, the white horse that uh, looks, you know, just so wonderfully modern at a distance. Um, it looks like a Picasso. Uh, it does like a lot of great ancient art i've mm -hmm. seen it um but there's this human desire to create and in the 19 late 60s and 70s as, as part of the minimalist conceptualist art movement there came a group of artists who did what they called earthworks and they were just that they would lease some remote piece of land and create something uh, the most famous was Robert Smithson's spiral jetty, which is like this beautiful spiral into this shallow lake in the middle of nowhere, Utah, Nevada, Wyoming, I don't remember. And then these wonderful photographs. And based on that as his art, um, he could, you know, um, people would help him or any uh, national uh, endowment for the arts grants anyway i think that there are people uh, in england in the uk certainly who they just like to do that they just like to create these things and maybe have an air of mystery or uh, but that's their passion mm -hmm. uh, and they do it in that spirit of creating like a piece of artwork um, there are the famous doug and dave who just like to create allegedly, and I'm sure they did some, but to claim, you know, that they created these things by stamping down on boards in the middle of the night is ludicrous. Very much uh, so. 
the group of people involved that interested me the most, and I met and spoken with a number of them, are those people who, starting like in May and into October, September, whenever you know crops roll down, this is their passion, this is their obsession, and they don't know why, which I find fascinating. I think that's a very real thing going on. As to the exotic possibilities, one of my first thoughts was, let's just say um, at the highest levels of US, UK, secret above top secret technology, they've figured out a way to have certain satellite shoot down beams of some sort and just draw this thing, you know, right on the ground there to study the sociological, um, spiritual, cult reactions of the public to these things because they like studying shit like that. I mean, you know, they're, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> the other thing is um, that, you know, the most romantic possibility that they are doing it, which I, I think in some cases that other people have tried to explain away from me, but um, I think that some of these things, especially the most largest, most complex, most perfectly spun, you know, 180 circles like pearls. I find it very, well, anyway, um, that that is completely open to me. Um, trying to remember when, maybe it's 2016, less than 10 years ago, spent um, um, some days in uh, wheelchair. And they were simply the most, the weather had never been better in any part of the earth in history. You know, I, I expected Jane Austen to come riding up in you know a horse-drawn carriage at one point. It's beautiful, you know. I mean, wherever you live, Wiltshire has special, remarkable beauty. Yes. And um, we were lucky enough to um, have the aid of a number of people to direct us toward new and older crop circles and went in them and things. I have not had enough experience to say I experienced X, Y, or Z because I know myself. I'm in a crop circle. This is so cool. It's a beautiful day. What am I feeling? You know, it's not, you know, like some kind of Homer Simpson death ray on you or anything. It's just, I, I, I couldn't be objective there, but I was very impressed at the size of them and the sweep. And of course, when you're on the ground, it's a very different experience than looking at those lovely photos from helicopters and now drones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I saw the one I went and visited that was in Wiltshire um, was the jellyfish one. It was the shape of jellyfish. So it was about like a hundred or so meters long. <laughs> uh, honestly, it's the most profound thing I've ever seen from above. But obviously I didn't see it from above. I saw it walking into it. And even when I was in it, it just, it did feel weird, whether it's just because I was soaked up in the atmosphere of f trying to find this thing. Mm. But then I went to another crop circle at the base of um, Whitehorse Hill, and I've got photographs. So I have to try and get them off um, Google, um, Google Photos, where I've stored them. And they are at the knee, like the knee joint. The, the nodes have are at 45 degrees and they they've actually it's not bent it's like fused at a 45 yeah. degree and 
I took loads of photos up close so I could see them and it was very very strange to see that when all you're used to when Dave and Duggar got there well one that absolutely blew my mind and it I I accept that human beings are amazing and we can you know accomplish great things and solve problems but on top right below a layer that had been spun clockwise was a layer that had been spun counterclockwise. Wow. I don't remember where it was or the year, but that one had been well-documented and come on, give me a break. You know, something is going on here other than creative or obsessed people doing the thing. I agree. I agree. I, I I think some of it is man-made, like you say, artists and a lot of it, most of it. Yeah, but there's some if that not, you just yeah. go, how, how can you do that without being able to see it from above? And I just, I don't. Get I'd it. love to see somebody make a documentary on it, just for that purpose. You know, maybe with a drone using infrared, of people working at night. I can't. It's very difficult for me, and yet some of the more sophisticated ones have been created by people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I grant that, absolutely. But there is a mysterious factor for me, although I have colleagues who just say they're all. That's, again, like saying in the old days, all UFOs are something else. So we can, whatever it is, we can explain it away. Trust us. <laughs> so I guess... All your years and years of research, talking to people, hearing all these stories, these experiences, do you have an opinion on what you think this whole phenomena is, like, in general? No. <laughs> Fair enough. Nice, I, nice succinct you know, answer. I like that. <laughs> 40 years or so in, I remember reflecting back really seriously and consciously and just kind of broke myself up in that. I realize that um, I am as sure as I can be that I do not know, you know, a, a fraction of what's going on. I'm positive of that. I also know I am better informed than most people. I'm a fairly good communicator on the subject. I'm very careful about what I say is versus maybe, could be, want it to be, don't want it to be. Uh, that irritates some people uh, and folks occasionally, if they ask me my opinion on a case or an incident or something, I will say, I don't have an opinion on it. And some people get huffy. How could that be? I'm one of those people who feel, you know, every, every American and every person in the UK and in the world is entitled to have an opinion. And isn't that wonderful? If I don't know anything about a subject, I prefer to have an informed opinion and I will wait to have an opinion. If that sounds like I'm playing with words or something, I'm not. Um, But I have lots of subjects UFO related and otherwise that I am developing opinions on or don't have, or, you know, I I don't know. I I know obviously we're not alone. I, I believe that as well as anybody can believe based on, a preponderance of evidence, accounts, study, um, that there are a number of phenomena. The percentage that I focus in on have to do with people who have had these contact abduction experiences. 
but also on the history of the subject. Uh, but interdimensional, um, you know, beings living in the center of the earth, um, one, you know, sitting on the chair next to you, you just can't see them, um, always been here and come and go, or from the farthest corners of the cosmos. And after a while you learn, you can't just reject something because you're uncomfortable with it. Uh, doesn't mean you have to accept it, but Shakespeare's always was rice, and there is more to uh, your world, Horatio. Uh, uh, or then I forget the quote. That's terrible. Uh, more than you can dream of, to you know, in essence. And I hope most of your viewers and listeners know that quote. Awesome. So just before we finish up, where can our listeners find your podcast and more about you yourself? Um, I'm always available uh, on Facebook if you're there. Uh, shockingly, there are a number of Peter Robbinses in the world besides myself. <laughs> I am the one who is listed as Ithaca, New York, although uh, outside of uh, the city. Um, uh, I do this weekly show. Uh, meanwhile, here on Earth, it's from 7 o'clock to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, midnight till 2 a.m. your time. And I know everybody wants to stay up for that on Mondays. Uh, you can also find it in the KGRA Digital Broadcasting Archives or audio versions on Spreaker.com. And it's not a... The format is often one-to-one -one biographical discussion interviews where people have a chance to really tell us the story of their lives, uh, often people whose work we know, um, or discussion panels. I'm also now proud to be doing my monthly podcast via uh, Paranormal Panorama Network, and that show is called UAP Global Perspective. And the episode that's running right now is um, Stephen Bassett and I discussing the subjects. Awesome. So we put all the links on the uh, on the show notes as well. But for now, we could talk for hours. But thank you very much, Peter. It's been incredible to chat into you. Fantastic. I'm glad to do it, guys. And good luck with the show. Keep doing what you're doing. Pursuit of the Paranormal with Ash and Greg.